All right, well, turn with me to Luke chapter 22. And we will make it, and, and you'll notice, if you just look at the end, there's a lot of verses, like 71 verses in this chapter. Um, chapter 23 has 56. And then again, the next chapter, 25, has like 53, something like that. So, I mean, we have only three chapters, but we have some really long chapters full of some really important events in the life of Jesus. We're calling the study Christ our Passover. We'll explain that as we go through. For some of you, you already understand what that phrase means, what that title means, but we're going to look afresh at that. As we come into chapter 22, we come into what is known as the Passion of Christ um, and the Passion Week, so the week leading up to, and we are already actually in it, um, but we're coming to that place where he is about to uh, have the Passover meal. He's going to be arrested. He's going to go before a series of trials. He's going to be crucified. And so it's called the Passion, the Passion of Christ. And, I, I, you know, what, what do we mean by passion? Well, it's, it's from a Latin word, which means to um, endure. So we say, we, we, we use the word passion. It's like, I'm really passionate about that. Or I have a passion for this thing. Or a passion for that thing. That's the wrong definition when we talk about the Passion Week of Christ. The word passion coming from a Latin word, uh, meaning to endure, meaning to suffer. So we're talking about the suffering week of Christ. We're talking about the suffering of Christ as we speak of the passion. But that's, you know, theologically what this, this time of Jesus' life is known for. So maybe you never quite, you've heard the phrase, but never identified exactly what it was referring to. And um, I, it really kind of springs out of the, the, the Garden of Gethsemane as you see the Lord enduring and suffering there. Um, but we, we get a great picture of the mission of the Lord, the fulfillment of the mission. He came to seek and save that which was lost. He came to give his life a ransom for many. And we're going to see him pay that price in these closing chapters in Luke 22 through 24. We have seen Jesus teach the word of God. We've seen him heal the sick, raise the dead, give sight to the blind, set people free from the power of Satan, turn ungodly thieves into generous saints, and the world can take it no more, and they will cry out, crucify him. Doesn't make much sense, does it? You read through that long list of things that he did, and we can make a much longer list, and you would expect and say, and the world embraced him and received him. No, they rejected him. And that is what's in focus as we move here. So let's begin reading at verses 1 through 7 where we see a plot to kill Jesus is developed. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money, so he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Because it's the multitude that they feared, right? Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. So, the first thing we want to talk about is the timing of this plot. It's happening at a time of feast and celebration. 
We have two feasts that are going on. And really, if we take it into the resurrection of Christ, we have three feasts that are going on. You have the, the feast of Passover. We, we have the feast of unleavened bread. Passover was one day. Then ran for seven uh, days after that, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So these were often joined together. And then the next day would be the Feast of First Fruits. Some of the other feasts that, of course, Israel has is the Feast of Pentecost, Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles. But it's these first three that have been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And the fourth one, the Pentecost, the Day of Pentecost is also fulfilled. Um, the Passover lamb or the Passover, um, looks to the deliverance that the Lord provided to the children of Israel under the 10th plague that was upon the land of Egypt. We're going to talk about more in just a moment. Um, and they were told to take a lamb, and they were to sacrifice that lamb. And wherever that blood of the lamb was found, there, the death would pass over that house. Well, Jesus is the lamb of God. And he was fulfilling that Passover. He fulfilled that he died on Passover as the lamb of God. Isn't that amazing, the, the beauty of that, that picture that the Lord is putting together. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, when the children of Israel were getting ready to leave Egypt, they were to cook uh, their bread, and it was to be unleavened. They were to leave with haste. Um, it becomes also a picture of Christ who had no leaven. He died as a sinless, spotless sacrifice. But how we are to live um, and keep that Feast of Unleavened Bread in sincerity and truth. We are not to have any kind of compromise or sin. Um, the Feast of first fruits is the first crops of the barley harvest were, were uh, harvested and they were brought before um, the Lord and the priest would offer a wave offering first thing in the morning on the Feast of first fruits, which is also known to us as Resurrection Sunday. And Jesus rose from the dead on that feast, fulfilling that, and he is the Feast of first fruits. He is the first fruit of the resurrection that will never die again. And we are part of that. Um, harvest of souls. The, the, the Feast of Pentecost, um, this was the end of the barley harvest, the beginning of the wheat harvest, and it was, again, to show thanksgiving to the Lord, and it's in this feast, Acts chapter 2, that the Lord poured out his Holy Spirit upon the church, and the church began. The harvesting of souls began um, in the name of Christ. Um, trumpets, Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles, not fulfilled yet. We'll have to wait Till the end to see how these are fulfilled. Speculation abounds around them. Maybe even some good speculation, but I'll just leave some question marks there for now, wondering how the Lord is going to fulfill them. If all, you have these seven feasts. Four out of the seven have been fulfilled at the first coming of Christ. I think it's safe to say that the next three are going to be fulfilled in some fashion at the second coming of Christ and the establishing of the kingdom. It'll be interesting to see how this is done. So this is what's going on. You have these feasts, and it's the time of the Passover feast. And this, again, yes, it does, it commemorates uh, children of Israel being delivered out from Egypt. But let's talk a little bit more about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The day after Passover is when it began, and it ran for seven days. Again, Moses said, Get ready to leave in haste, you know, be ready to go, have your waist girded, don't even use leaven. You don't have time to let the yeast have its impact and cause the, the dough to rise. Just be ready to go. And, and so this is exactly what takes place. Now we read here that in the commentary that 
that these feasts are, are brought together and that Passover is often included um, in, in the mentioning of that. So um, just a, an important thing for us to know, sometimes when you are talking about unleavened bread, you may hear it called um, uh, Passover because they just kind of blended these together, although they are distinct feasts. But there is a reference to time, not a reference to the similarity of the feast, but the reference to time it often be just called Passover. Um, but that would also include the Unleavened uh, Bread Festival. Um, Paul wrote about this, 1 Corinthians 5, 7 through 8. And he says, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. So thinking of dough, right? Since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast." Not with old leaven, not with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So our position is that we are unleavened because of Passover. The Lord has made us clean. But our practice should be one of being unleavened. Leaven being a type of sin in Scripture, we are to live lives that are unleavened. We should not be engaged in uh, sin and conduct that would run contrary to the faith and the covenant that we've entered into with the Lord. So this is the timing. It's, it's a high time. It's when the, the city of Jerusalem would just swell. It was one of the mandatory feasts, three mandatory feasts of Israel. And this is one of them when they would have to come. The males, adult males would have to come, but they often would bring their family. Jam-packed. You hope you booked early because if you didn't, you weren't going to find a place to stay. That's how full the city was. Um, but we also read there in verses 1 through 7 of Luke 22 that the religious leaders were plotting the murder of Jesus Christ, but they feared the people. Now, don't read that as they feared the people and they wanted to, get, they wanted to kill Jesus. It's they wanted to kill Jesus, but they feared what the people might do. And that's why they sought Judas, who could betray him, away from the multitudes, the people whom they feared. So these guys understand that the nation is looking to Jesus right now, and they're amazed at what he does. They know that the multitudes are coming. They know that you can't even get into the homes where he are. He know, they know that they're following him around the Sea of Galilee. They, they've got the whole report. They understand the emphasis or, uh, that, that, or the importance that this man has become. But how quickly things are going to change. So these religious leaders, they plot to kill. Now here's the interesting thing about these guys. We get a commentary about them in Mark chapter 15, verses 9 through 11. And it comes from, the insight comes from Pontius Pilate. But Pilate answered them saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of what? Envy. They were envious of Jesus. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. So this crowd that was so excited about him, they were able to eventually turn him and persuade them. But it was because of envy. These guys didn't like Jesus turning the tables and the people listening. They didn't like the crowds that came to follow him and sit at his teaching. They became so jealous of him. Even, even John's disciples dealt with this a little bit, didn't they? 
John the Baptist. Um, when Jesus began to baptize, his disciples began to baptize, um, the disciples of John come to, John the Baptist come to him and say, hey, everybody is going to Jesus and he's baptizing them. Everybody's going out there. You're John the Baptist. He's Jesus the Messiah. He's cutting into your turf and territory. This is what you do. And they, 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 they came to him with this and what John said, I think it's such a profound statement. He says, listen, nobody can have anything unless heaven gives it to them. Meditate on that. Even in reference to the Messiah. Whatever sphere of influence for the kingdom God gives, it's God who gives it. And so we rest there in the sovereignty of the Lord. But there was this envy around Jesus. And how sad. They should have been celebrating and worshiping. The Messiah has finally come, but instead all they can think is, what about me? That's what they was going through their mind. Well, all these crowds are coming. I wish I could heal like that. Hmm, I can't. I guess we better kill him. And now it kind of seems, you know, a little comical to say it that way, but that's what's going on in their heart. And one of the most notable miracles of all was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And, and because this was a notable miracle, this is something that is undeniable, what they wanted to do is they not only wanted to kill Jesus, but they also wanted to kill Lazarus <laughs> because he had been raised. How hard does your heart have to be to sit in a circle and say, you know what? We're losing airtime, boys. And if we don't get rid of this guy, we may lose our influence over this, this country. We may have to actually get legitimate jobs. We may have to actually start serving these people and shepherding the people of Israel. And our ability to line our pockets and manipulate them will be lost. So we need, to, we need to get rid of him. And somebody chimes in and says, hey, not just him. We need to get rid of Lazarus also because everybody's coming to Jesus because they've heard about this miracle. Good point. We should kill him too. Nowhere in their thinking did the thought come say, this guy has, pa has power over death. He can raise the dead. He can give blind, uh, sight to the blind, uh, speech to the mute, hearing to the deaf. He can walk on water. He can feed you know, a multitude with nothing, essentially. There's power there. He casts out demons. Maybe we ought to tap into who he is and what he's doing. No, because of envy. Because they were losing airtime. Their position was being threatened. So the countrymen, they were betraying the Messiah that was sent. They wanted glory and recognition. But it wasn't just the, 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 the religious leaders. It was also his, one of his friends. One of the twelve. We read there that they came, or Judas came to him and, and began to make a, a deal with them that I'll turn them over at a time and nobody's going to be around. And that's why we, of course, are going to read here and through our studies of how he betrayed them in the garden at night. No multitudes to be worried about. But what we read in this section is, I mean, it really is kind of disturbing, isn't it? Um, verse 3, Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way, confirmed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray them. And they're plotting it out. Well, what's the best way to do it? Well, what about this? No, that's not going to work. What about this? No, no. Uh, how, about, how about the garden? He's always praying. He prays early. He prays late. Maybe this will be it. 
that's exactly what we're going to do. And so they came with the plan. But, but uh, how sad to see this guy who had seen all of these miracles, had seen the Lord do these things, decide to betray him. John, but th this phrase, Satan entered his heart. I'm sure that caught a lot of your, your interest in, in like, what exactly does that mean? And John chapter 13, verse 2 of this same betrayal, we read, And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So a thought comes. Here, here's something. In his heart, this is something you could do. You could betray him. Um, Acts chapter 5, verse 3, was when Peter confronted Ananias, Sapphira, who lied, about the amount of money that they had given, we read this. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? So we see that, there, you know, not just with Judas, but others succumb to the temptation, to the lust, to the desires of their heart for greed, for money, for fame, for recognition. That's what was going on with Ananias. He wanted to be recognized as being one of the, the most spiritual well, just be spiritual. But, you know, they, they concocted this whole plan to look like they're more spiritual. But he says, why has Satan filled your heart, Ananias? So we have this idea um, going on of Satan coming and tempting and influencing. Um, we also um, read of how this was already a, a predetermined course that was going to take place, right? Um, so... We'll, we'll, I think we'll get to that later on in our study when we come back to him. But Judas was one of those 12s. He had seen everything up close. He had heard the personal conversations with Jesus. He had witnessed his love, his compassion, his power. He had a behind-the-scenes experience with the creator of the universe. But that wasn't enough for him because what was in his heart was a desire for money. He wanted greed. Greed was what controlled. He wanted money. He wanted power. We get this commentary from John in his gospel, John 12, verse 6. It says, this he said, Judas, when he rebuked Mary for pouring out that costly bottle of oil, a year's worth of wages upon the Lord. He rebukes her and he says, you should have given this to the poor. And he says, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. Had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. So Judas at some point gets found out for being a thief. Um, maybe it all began to make sense afterwards. Why were we always short? That dude was taking the money. And, and so the greed um, developed further and further in his heart so that he looked and he thought, you know what a good thing to do would be would be to sell this person Jesus. Why would he do that? I mean, there's obviously a greed thing going on. He's obviously opened up his heart and his life to the influence of Satan. But you know, maybe it's just this flat-out disappointment that Jesus is not setting up the kingdom the way he thought the king should work. This is not the way it's supposed to go. This is not the way the Messiah is supposed to handle things. Now, he has seen the miracles. He's seen the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. He saw Jesus walk on water. I mean, what more do you need to know? 
but it's not the way I conceived of it. See, I thought that in following you that there was going to be some perks and there was going to be some blessings. And they were all material in his mind. They were all physical. And so he, in this moment, yields to the temptation of Satan and he walks down this road. Jesus asked the question earlier in his ministry, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? It's Mark 8, 34 through 39. But he says, I'll just read this section to you. It doesn't actually go through chapter 9, verse 1. That was my typo. It just goes down to verse uh, 39. But it says, when he called the people to himself with his disciples, also he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Maybe that's what Judas realized. I'm not into that. I don't want to do that. Then the question, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? That's a, that's a probing question, isn't it? Eternal life. What will a man give for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. What is that day going to be like when Judas is resurrected from the dead to stand at the great white throne judgment and give an account? Wow. I can't, it's hard to even imagine the kind of sorrow and grief. And who knows, maybe it's going to be just full anger and outrage. I don't know how people are going to respond. We know every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. But will that be willingly or will that be unwillingly? You know, maybe, maybe their hearts will be so hardened like Pharaoh that it will just be, they'll bring them to their knees even in the hardness of their heart. Maybe it will be like that. But what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, Judas has an answer to that, right? 30 pieces of silver. That's what I want. And that's what he, he gave up. Now, what was payday like? When he made this trade, what was payday like for Judas? Was it exciting? Was it exhilarating? Did he you know, think about all he could do with that money? Or was it immediate sorrow and grief that consumed him leading to a suicide? Yeah, that's what happened. And isn't that a perfect picture of what our lust does? Peter says that lust wars against our soul. But it, you don't know that the war is going on until you step across the line. The whole while, it's lights, it's glimmer, it's exciting, it's, it's heart pumping, it's, 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 just, it's attractive until you cross the line. And as soon as you cross the line, then the war is revealed. Like you're walking in this masquerade of life and, and all the events the whole time. But there comes a point when, when it, it, it just lifts. And it's not like it takes a long time for the war to show. It's like the war has been going on the whole time. You just didn't know it. The enemy had deceived. He's coming in like an angel of light. And it looks so beautiful. And for, for Judas, man, when he did that, it says and he, be, he became over, overcame with grief. And he went out and he hung himself. Yeah. So what was payday like? It was miserable. And that is what sin is like. 
You reap what you sow. If you, if you, if you, you sow unto death, you will reap death. If you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap death. But if you sow unto the Spirit, you're going to reap eternal life. And here's the thing that just crosses my mind. He did this for just a, you know, a pouch full of silver. But what is the new Jerusalem going to be like? You're going to walk on streets of gold. You're, you're going to have gates that each gate is the, you know, was made out of a single pearl. This place is going to be amazing. But it's just going to be the asphalt. Gold is just asphalt in heaven. Because that's not, I mean, the, the, obviously it's written as a description of its beauty and how it's, it's so valuable. But you know, if that's, if that's what we walk on, if that's the door we walk through, what must it be like in the soul and the spirit? So payday was lousy and he forfeited the glories of heaven and so much more. He stands as a strong testimony to, to consider our actions. Judas made a statement of what he valued when he agreed to betray Jesus. He valued money. And, and it did not. May we probe that question and ask ourselves, what does, what does Troy value? Ask yourself, what do you value? And what are you choosing? Because like it or not, they go together. But, but the deception is when we, you know, we make this choice, but we don't really think that's what we value. And, and, and that's the deception, isn't it? But when we can realize that what we choose is what I value, and that it leaves other things off to the side, like the kingdom of God, like Jesus, now we have to deal with the reality of what we're doing. So may we, may we probe, may we ask that question. Well, let's move on. Uh, the next step in this section of Scripture, verses 8 through 13, is that the disciples prepare for Passover. So we read verse 8, and he sent Peter and John saying, Go prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, which was not common for the day, or usually would have been a woman. Follow him to the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you, show you a large furnished upper room. There make ready. So they went and found it just as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. So we read here that Jesus was surrendered to being the Passover. Or that's the point I guess we'll take from it. He is being surrendered to being the Passover lamb. He's gone to Jerusalem. You know, he was down there in Jericho. He was there at that, you know, you know by that sycamore tree with Zacchaeus. And he went to his house and he began to leave and he was met by blind Bartimaeus crying out, have mercy on me, son of David. And before he left there and began to make that ascent to go into Jerusalem, he could, have just, he could have just said, you know what? I don't think so. I want to go to Jerusalem. Because it's after he leaves there, it begins the, the, week, the last week of his life. When he was walking up there, that arduous hike up to the city of Jerusalem, he knew what kind of real suffering was waiting for him when he got there. And he went. 
We read in other places that he set his, well, uh, Luke 9.51 says, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He steadfastly, he's like, I'm into it. I'm going to do what the Lord has called me to do. Another verse that I think is so uh, relevant to this whole discussion is Hebrews 12.2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He, he saw what was coming there in Jericho, and he's like, let's go. And he set his face steadfastly like a flint, right? Like it wasn't going to be changed. It was hardened. I'm going to do what the Lord, my Father, has called me to do. And I'm going to go. So he goes. Now, now Jesus was surrendered to that call. And he also was active in putting himself in the situation where his arrest and crucifixion could take place. He did not do things to instigate the arrest. Right? He's just, he knows it's going to happen. He's following the Father. He's worshiping. He's doing what he's supposed to do. He's a Jew. He is supposed to be in Jerusalem. He is supposed to be participating in the Passover. He's doing what he's supposed to do. But in doing this, he is actively putting himself in the situation where the arrest and the crucifixion can take place. And that's a pattern for us today, isn't it? We know what the Lord has called us to. He, we know how he's told us to live our lives. We know the, the, the priorities he's told us to have. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. We don't go out of our way to poke you know, uh, trouble and stir it up. We just follow the Lord. And if following the Lord puts us in a place where it stirs up trouble, then, then so be it. So if we suffer, let's suffer for the namesake of the Lord, not because we're instigators of some kind of trouble. Of course, preaching the gospel and living for Jesus, many will say, is instigating. But if it is, so be it, because this is what we've been called to. Uh, hopefully, there's a resolve in your heart to fulfill what God has planned for your life. Now, now, of course, what Jesus is doing here is profound and unique among the, you know, the trillions of people that have ever lived. He is coming to fulfill the work of redemption. But the Lord has a plan for our life too. The Lord has something he wants to do through your life. And I, and I just would ask, are you, are you resolved in this? Are you resolute? Are you like, I'm not going to be moved off of this. I'm going to be steadfast and I'm going to do what the Lord wants me to do. And I hope that's your heart. And that no matter what trouble looks like, you know, is ahead of you or is definitely ahead of you or you're going through, is that you continue to press on fulfilling the purpose that God has for your life. But what if I do this and something difficult happens? Well, then I guess the words of Jesus will be true. If you want to follow me, it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. They're going to hate you because they hate me and you're not better than me. So if you understand that they hate me, don't think that they're going to just stand up and applaud for you. You're not better than me. You're not greater than the master. So if we find ourselves in trouble for following the voice and the plan that God has for our life, we can say, Lord, your word is true. You've been faithful. He's not deceived us. 
He's been very honest with us. So Jesus was surrendered to being the Passover, right? The Passover lamb. He goes there. He says, get the feast uh, house ready. But let's, let's talk for a moment about this, this man carrying the water pot. Because here's a home surrendered to Jesus, right? Here's a home surrendered to Jesus. The city was packed and locations would have been few and far between. This location for this upper room, many believe maybe it was Mark's parents' home where they gathered. If you've been to Jerusalem, you've been to the upper room in Jerusalem, it's probably not it. Sorry to disturb you, but that's probably not it. But, but there was an upper room where they had the Passover. Maybe the very same room where, you know, they had many meetings and gatherings. But they, they went to this, this place, and this man opened his house up and he said, come on in, do whatever you want to do. Maybe he could have sold this thing and rented it out for a lot more than he was going to get from Jesus and the disciples. But, but we see there's a generosity. Oh, the Lord wants it. Fine, come on. And may that be our quick response anytime the Spirit of the Lord comes to us and says, hey, the Lord has need of this. The Lord has need of those finances. The Lord has need of this time. The Lord has need of these talents and these skills. The Lord has need of your house. The Lord has need of you in that location over there for the rest of your life. Hopefully, our response is, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. I've got it all prepared, and I am ready to go. I'm ready to yield to that call uh, and and request. May we never be selfish or tight-fisted with the Lord. Isn't that like the, the worst person to become tight-fisted, to be a miser with? The one who holds your next breath, the one who died on the cross for your sins, the one who has eternity planned out and he's preparing a place for you, the one who's going to allow you to walk on streets of gold and walk through the gates that are made of a single pearl. I mean, do we really want to get tight-fisted with that guy? I mean, you, you know, you, if you've had kids, you've seen your, that tight-fistedness that unwillingness to, to, you know, to give and to be generous in your kids, and you have to help them through that, don't you? you gotta, you got to teach them to be generous. <laughs> uh, my nephew, when he was real small, just, just barely old enough to talk, same age as our son Tyler, and we were at their house, and um, they were playing, and Tyler was grabbing a toy, and whatever toy, you know, I, I don't know how old, how old were they, Rebecca? You know, three years old? And, you know, so whatever toy Tyler went to get that's the one Daniel wanted right I mean you've seen little kids play so it's this one and so whatever and then then Amanda says to Daniel his mom says you know Daniel you've got to share and he says well okay but sharing is my worst thing (laughs) you know can any of you relate to that it's like that's my worst thing oh the honesty of what's really going on in our heart kind of refreshing sometimes isn't it but you know We don't want to be tight-fisted with the Lord. We want to be like this guy. Hey, the Lord has need of your house. At the busiest time of the year, what's he thinking? Now, it sounds like he made some preparations ahead of time. Whether they were in person, I don't know. Maybe he sent a messenger, I don't know. Maybe it's just that the Spirit of the Lord met with this guy and said, Hey, reserve your house. Don't let anybody come in. Because these rooms would have been at a premium because, again, what's going to happen? You're going to have a meal there. You're going to have a meal. So everybody's going to gather together. So you have people traveling from all over the world to come and have 
the Passover meal. You need a room. You need a place to do that. But this guy's just like, all right. I personally, not that I have any proof from Scripture, I just think personally the Spirit of the Lord tapped him and said, don't let this room be let out to anybody. I'm going to but get it ready. You know, don't, don't lease it out. And, and he just was ready. May we be like that. So sensitive to the Spirit of the Lord that we can hear the Lord just say, I want that. I need that. That's, that's the way our hearts should respond. It's like, yeah, but this is my career. But this is my time. But this is my life. These are the things I plan for. And the Lord's like, really? You don't have life if I don't give you the next breath. You don't have a career if I don't allow your brain to put, you know, then, you know, coherent thoughts together. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? He thought he was a cow for 40, you know, you know out in the back 40, you know, for those seven years. You know, I can do that to you too. I can make you, you know, lose all ability and all, all function. So why, would, why do we become tight-fisted with the Lord, though? Uh, you, know, and I, I, you know, I just think maybe there's some of you in here that you, you're in that moment. It's like, I know what the Lord wants, but I'm just so afraid to turn it over. Well, you know, we got a contrast between two people here, don't we? We have the Judas and we got the homeowner. We have greedy Judas and generous homeowner that says, whatever you want, Lord. And I pray that we'll allow the Spirit of God to take and make application into our own hearts our own lives regarding this. Let's move on. Verses 14 through 20, we see Jesus establishes the communion service, and this is going to happen at the Passover. When the hour had come, he sat down with the 12. I'm at verse four, chapter 22, verse 14. Now verse 15. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Just ponder that. If you want to take something home to ponder, just think of that fervent desire, knowing all that's going to take place. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a, is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So a little more on the history of this, this Passover meal. Exodus chapter 12 is where you get your background. Exodus chapter 12. Israel was, in, was being held in slavery, heavy bondage, and they were longing to be set free, and they were crying out to the Lord. So God raises up Moses to be a deliverer out from the clutches of Pharaoh, the king, who was, un, uh, who was killing their sons and, and making them serve with rigor. But he's unwilling to hear Moses when he calls for the release of God's people. So the Lord begins to send plagues one by one. We know that there are ten in all. But at the beginning, you don't know how many are going to come. And so these plagues came one by one. And sometimes Pharaoh would, would harden, and sometimes he would say, okay, and then he would harden his heart again. But there finally came the tenth plague, which was the plague that broke Pharaoh. And this is the plague that also was the Passover. 
the instructions there in chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, is that they were to take a male lamb in the first year without blemish, and they were to kill it at twilight on the 14th of Nisan. This is, correlates with our Easter, okay? It's that time of year. Easter is um, the Passover celebration fulfilled. Exodus 12, 7, they were to then take the blood uh, from this slain lamb, and they were to put it on the doorposts and on the lintel of their homes. In verse 8, they were to sit down and eat the lamb for dinner and prepare to leave Egypt, their bondage. Then in verses 12 through 14, we, we get a summary, which I'd like to read to you. It says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will, what? Pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. And so the blood of the Lamb kept them from experiencing death in their homes. The blood of the Lamb gave them that salvation. Jesus now is celebrating the Passover feast. That's what it's all about. It's to commemorate Exodus chapter 12. And, and, but here Jesus, as we just read, he says, now hang on a second. For thousands of years, you've been eating this bread and drinking from this cup. But I want to tell you something. Let me tell you what this bread really is. This bread, that's me. And I'm broken for you. And this cup that you're drinking, this cup of, of red wine, that's my blood spilled for you. It's the cup of the new covenant. Now, that phrase would not have been brand new to them. In Jeremiah chapter 31, we read in verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. Not on, not on tablets of stone now, right? He wrote the law there on the tablet. I'm going to write on their hearts. He said, I will put the law in their minds and write on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, nationally, Israel's yet to experience that fulfillment. That will happen at the second coming of Christ, where they will, this will happen to them. Um, or just prior, as they call out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, when they realize that Jesus is their Messiah, that he is a Passover, and the Lord will come and he will rescue them physically, but spiritually they will have made that confession with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he's been raised from the dead, and they will be saved. All that remain, which is not many, coming out of the great tribulation. But this is something that's available to all people. So individual, uh, individuals 
will make that confession, right? A, a Jew or Gentile. And everybody has to make that confession individually, but a moment will come where individuals nationally will do that for Israel. But this is what he's instituting. It's the new covenant. He says, so the bread that you've been eating, that unleavened bread, that's me. That, that bread is, is my body broken for you. And you think of what he went through in the cross, how his blood was shed. And so he instituted this. And this is the communion service that you're so familiar with, which we'll have next Wednesday night, where we eat that bread and we drink that cup, remembering what the Lord has done for us. There are four cups. I believe there are four cups that they would drink at the communion, or at the Passover um, meal. But it's the third cup that's called the cup of redemption, remembering how they were redeemed from Egypt by God with the blood of the Lamb. And he says this cup is the cup of the new covenant because he's redeeming them with his blood because he is what, as John said, the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So it's, I mean, you have thousands of years of, of uh, anticipation in this moment. Now, they didn't see it coming. You know, they didn't see it coming until this moment. And I'm sure even at that moment, they didn't fully realize it, but there came a moment. And can you imagine what it must have been like when those synapses began to fire in their brain, when the Spirit began to put it all together? Because it doesn't happen right here. But after Jesus was risen from the dead, and they were like, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. My body, my blood, the cup of the new covenant. And imagine how their, their minds must have exploded with joy and amazement when all of this came. And so Jesus has fulfilled this. And this is what he is establishing with them. He came and he hung and he died on that cross, taking our sin on his body, that he might pass over the death plague that is upon us because of our own sin. It's not Pharaoh this time. It's us. It's not Pharaoh to blame. It's us to blame. We've put ourselves in our own captivity. We've sold our own souls into slavery. Don't get mad at Pharaoh. Get mad at yourself. But the Lord comes and he redeems us from the consequences of our sin. And so what a beautiful picture it is. We close here in verses 21 through 23 with Judas, where Judas fails to guard his heart. So we get one more mention of him. It says, but behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. So they're all sitting around the table, all 12 of them. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. It's not immediately obvious to them that it's Judas. They're not like, ah, Judas. No, nobody's like, who, would that, who could do that? Right? They, they, they have no idea of who would do this. Like they figure it out later. But Judas, and I think it's so interesting here in verse 22. It's been determined, but woe to the man by whom he's betrayed. There's, this is going to happen, the sovereignty of God, but the responsibility of man is woe if you're the one that's doing it. There is a mystery with Judas for sure, okay? There's, there's no question. 
But let me read to you from Acts 4, verses 23 through 28. It's a prayer of of the disciples after being released from prison. But it, it becomes relevant to this moment right here. And the context is, they said, we can't preach in your name. What are we going to do? God, you're sovereign over all. And so they reflect back to the crucifixion and how God was sovereign even in the crucifixion. So let me read to you, verse 23. And then being let go, they went, their own, uh, went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that they, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them. Your creator, who by the mouth of your servant David said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. It's what we just read, right? For truly against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, Everybody were gathered together, and here it is, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. There's a sovereign act of God. God is not taken by surprise, but woe to the man by whom it happens. You know, some will read this and say, well, I'm not responsible. Whatever happens, happens. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, choose this day whom you'll serve. What are you going to do? Jesus says, you know, you are not willing to come to me that you might have life. He lays blame at the heart and the will of man for what he does. But God is sovereign and he knows all things and is surprised by nothing. How does that work out? Not quite sure. But I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to walk obediently and humbly with the Lord and trust in the sovereignty of God to watch over me and protect me and do exactly what he wants. So the nations were plotting a vain thing. Let's kill the king. (laughs) What did it accomplish? Nothing except their condemnation. Because the Lord died and he rose from the dead. Judas was not an obvious betrayer. We're closing here. The disciples were wondering who it was. So obviously there's a lot of things that are going on in the heart of Judas behind those, you know, behind the, the view or the conversation of all of his closest friends. Something was churning. Some discontentment was, was, was bubbling up. It, it, you know, it kind of comes out when Mary anoints him with that costly bottle of spikenard. I mean, there was kind of a little flash into his heart. He rebukes her. Woman, what are you doing? You're wasting all this money. He just poured the oil on Jesus. And he just said, you're wasting all this money. Again, he does not value the Messiah anymore. What he values is what? Money. That's what he values. Somewhere along the way, his heart got lost. And what a dangerous thing it is. Two verses as we close. Mark 7, 20 through 23, he said to them, what comes out of, um, he said, what comes out of a man That defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness. That's his thing right there, isn't it? Wickedness, deceit, lawlessness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. It's it's in our hearts that we need to pay attention. 
What's your heart longing for? What's your heart attracted to? Because that's it. it it's, it's not just the, the, you know, the opportunity that walks by you. It's not the, the man or the woman or the, you know, the, the chance to you know, go pursue a bunch of money and you know it's going to cost. It's not, it's not opportunity. That's not the, opportunity is not the problem. What's the problem? It's my heart. Because, you know, if we think about it, there's all kinds of opportunities that come to you all the time that have zero impact upon you. Right? I mean, I mean you think of, there's plenty that we've done wrong, but you can think of a, a, a super long list, if you think about it, of things you've never acted upon. And even, you know, you've never even thought about maybe. Or even if you thought about it, you immediately jettisoned the thought and you were appalled by it. And there never was even a, a chance that it would happen. Why? Because your heart's not. That's not where my heart is. My heart's not there. But when your heart is in that place and the opportunity comes by, mm, that's when we fall in sin, right? So somewhere along the way, Judas stopped questioning his heart's desire for money. And, and that's where he fell. Hebrews 3.12 says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Even unbelief begins in the heart. It's an evil heart of unbelief. And so guard your heart. Keep it saturated in the presence of the Lord. Keep it saturated with the word of God. This is what is needed. Now listen, there's, I'm, I'm not going to say Judas's life is just like every other life. I will grant that there are some specific interesting things going on. But I know the question's got to be, well, why did Jesus choose him? I was pondering, has anybody ever thought, why in the world did Jesus choose Judas, right? Well, it was determined, okay. But you know, because I think the thought could, well, Jesus should have never chose this guy. Because maybe he would have never fallen in sin. There's that compassionate heart that comes out. But I want you to, I want to flip that for a second. Maybe it's, it's it's this. It was going to be Judas no matter what whether he's a disciple or just a guy on the street or whatever. And the Lord, wanting to have compassion and mercy upon him, brought him as close as anybody could ever come to see his love and his grace and his mercy, and he still rejected it. So rather than the Lord bringing him into a situation that was destined for failure, I say the Lord brought him close trying to give him that opportunity to make the right decisions. And listen, the closer you get to the Lord, if you can't make the right decision in the presence of the Lord, you can't make it anywhere. And so we see, I would say, even the grace of God in choosing him that he might experience that favor. But it was, pre, it was determined that it was going to go this way, and so it did. But I don't think you should ever read into the determination of God that it absolves man of his free will. Is there tension around this subject? Yeah. If you can figure it out, write a book, you make a lot of money. But you're not going to figure it out. Best, best way I ever heard it described, man's free will and God's sovereignty. You're sitting in a boat and you have one oar, man's free will. If you only use that one oar, you're going to go in circles. If you decide to abandon that and just pick up the sovereignty of God, you're going to go in circles the other way. But if you'll put both oars in the water and use them together, you'll get somewhere. And that is truth. Both of them function in God's purpose and in his complete wisdom. 
Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this grace and this mercy that you've shown to us, that, that you would send your son to be this lamb, that Jesus, you would set your face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem, to prepare the Passover. You knew what the Passover was all about. And so we thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your grace towards us. That you didn't look at the shame and, and turn away, but you, you endured the suffering and the shame. That you might redeem us, and we're grateful for it. Listen, if you're here and you've never experienced the forgiveness of Christ, you've never experienced the love of Jesus Christ, You've never turned from your sin, acknowledged that it is evil against God, and ran to the Lord and, and found this forgiveness in the crucifixion of Christ. And you need to do that tonight. Come to him. He loves you. He loves you, and he, he's got a plan for your life. And he's got a plan for your afterlife. But you've got to come to him. He's not going to put you in a headlock and drag you in just like he didn't do that with Judas. He had to make his own decisions. So you have to make your own decision of whether you will follow the Lord or not. And so as he stirs and moves in your heart, respond to that grace. Don't push it away and don't say some other day. Let it be today that you make that confession that Jesus is Lord. You can do that right where you sit pray the Lord will hear you if you're listening on the radio he will hear you wherever you are if you're driving down the road or if you're sitting in your house or at work if you're sitting in jail the Lord will hear you and he will respond he wants to be see as many people experience this salvation as possible he's paid such a high price he's not stingy with it he's abundant in his mercy amen